you're not discriminated against on the basis of your gender or color or creed. You know, that there are some attractive properties of such an economy. But crucially, most economies don't work that way. We're back with another episode of The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad MacArthur. We're speaking with Darren Asmaglu today. He's an MIT professor of economics, he's written numerous books, and he's also one of the most cited and referenced authorities in the field of economics. And today, we're going to zero in on one of his books titled, Why Nations Fail. Darren, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Bradford. It's uh, great to be joining you. Yeah, I think we're going to probably take this conversation to some cool places. Before we do, I want to hear a little bit about your background. What what got you interested in power dynamics of nations and how they fail and all these uh, these crazy topics to begin with? Well, I think uh, it takes one to know one. <laughs> so I've been interested <laughs> okay. in these things for you know quite a while. I was actually drawn to social science when I was uh, in high school, exactly because I wanted to understand these things. I hmm. was coming of age in Turkey at the time, and uh, you know, uh, it was under a military dictatorship, uh, pretty dysfunctional economy, inequality rocketing. And uh, so I thought this was really interesting, important yeah, to, to understand. I did not have the tool or the intellectual background to do so, but I thought, you know, this is what economics is about. Well, I thought so anyway. And so I got into studying economics to sort of do that. It turned out economics wasn't so much about that, not when I was studying it, and uh, but uh, but but it was a big enough tent that it allowed me to go in those directions. And a lot of my research, uh, when I was a young assistant professor, was on some of these topics: democracy, uh, you know, conflict between different groups in society, how this affected the economy, politics, mm-hmm. political dynamics. And then, so that all culminated in the book I wrote with James Robinson, Why Nations Fail. You know, that was a great experience for me. Uh, It was also a great meeting of minds. Uh, I sort of ran uh, into James, uh, Jim, uh, when I was still a graduate student. And uh, we were both struggling with the same questions. And so it was the beginning of a long and fruitful collaboration, uh, friendship. So that was really great because I think it's not fun to doing these things by yourself. It's much better when you have somebody to play with. I agree. So do you consider yourself an economist today? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I think again, uh, in the same spirit that economics is a big enough tent, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, many of the topics that I work on would not have been publishable in economics journals and not presentable in economics seminars 30 years ago, hmm. but things have changed. Uh, you know, one of my recent papers is, for example, about the causes of the rise of the fascist party in Italy. You know, you might think that's history or political science, but but actually economics now is broad enough that 
it sees those political dynamics as important for the economy, for long-run economic growth, inequality, and, and, and you can sort of get a lot of interest in such questions now. Fascinating. And if you went back, would you enter economics in the same way or would you have kind of gone through a different door? I don't know, actually. I mean, you know, it sort of turned out to be fine. Uh, it mm -hmm. worked out well. I think if I <clears throat> had been more determined and uh, more clear-eyed about what economics was about and what I wanted to do, perhaps I could have jumped into these political economy topics earlier, but probably that would have been a mistake because, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, when I first got into economics, those weren't the questions that people were researching and and teaching meant that I also learned a lot of the basics and they have served me well, both in terms of sort of tools for applying in various areas, but also uh, providing different perspectives uh, on the political economy questions that I sort of study now. For example, uh, you know, a lot of what I do today concerns the effects of automation, hmm. uh, inequality, productivity, and political effects of automation technologies. And that would have been impossible if I hadn't studied uh, lots of the sort of more nitty-gritty issues of labor markets and technology and hadn't done some of the work on exactly the areas that underpin, undergird that type of research today. Yeah, fascinating. Do you so maybe break down for us a little bit of the way you see nation states? And I know that in your book you spend a lot of time talking about these two camps: mm -hmm. the um, uh, political and societal systems that are inclusive or extractive. Mm -hmm. Maybe break down a little bit of that thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, as all ideal types, these are sort of imperfect; they're abstractions, but you know, especially for a book that aims to appeal to a broad audience, you have to simplify certain things. So for that, we came up with this classification, inclusive and extractive. And at some level, you know, inclusive looks very similar to what economists assume hmm. how the world works. So if you walk into an economics lecture, and uh, <clears throat> at the beginning of the year, uh, they would describe a market economy where there are secure property rights. People can uh, choose their occupation. They can enter into business. You know, firms compete. And there are some nice properties of an idealized economy like that. Uh, that's what, for example, you know, Adam Smith famously described with his invisible hand. But of course, we know that that's not how the world works. So that is an ideal uh, environment. And I think many economists sometimes forget that it's supposed to be an idealized environment. And they sort of think that many economies can be caricatured or characterized that way. Hmm. And, you know, what we wanted to emphasize is that, yes, indeed, if you have, you know, 
people can freely choose their occupation, their business. There are secure property rights so that when you invest, nobody's going to come and steal it. There are equal opportunities. You're not discriminated against on the basis of your gender or color or creed. You know, that there are some attractive properties of such an economy. But crucially, most economies don't work that way. And they don't work that way not because of the reasons that, you know, uh, there are you know, small imperfections, they don't work that way because there are big political barriers. The rules of the economic game are made by people. They're made by powerful people, and that's why power is critical. And when they make those rules, they don't make them with an equal opportunity, level playing field, secure property rights for everybody. They make them much more similar to the apartheid system, you know, in South Africa before it collapsed in 1994, you know, where large groups of people don't have access to economic opportunities. They are coerced. They are uh, exploited. Uh, their assets are insecure. Their economic opportunities are scarce. And so that's what we wanted to capture. Not that, you know, uh, things really work anywhere, like the economics textbook, but there are some economies that come a little closer to the some of the aspects mm. of it and of course we immediately also emphasize that the true notion of an inclusive economic institution is not like a free market or a libertarian dream but you need what we call inclusive markets which means markets that are embedded in public provision uh, redistribution and and such things but those are very important, especially you know at a point like this in the U.S. history. But the bigger sort of contrast that we wanted to emphasize is that throughout human history, we've been so far away from those inclusive institutions, much more towards institutions that are designed to extract resources, extract value from the mass of the population for the benefit of a few of an empowered elite. I'm hearing you explain these and I'm visualizing there's a tension and there's these almost two gravitational forces and we're constantly moving in between. And I wonder if these systems, ultimately they're made up of people and individuals and relationships and communities. And so it almost feels like that's a picture of humanity of there's this tension between this looking out for myself and my resources and then others and those around me. And, and taking that a little further, th there's a narrative that says U.S., Canada, Europe, these Western civilizations, these Western institutions that uh, are more liberal and there's more rights. Uh, a, a lot of the things you said, these inclusive um, systems. There's an error that says we are constantly moving slowly, slowly progressing towards that state, and we're getting closer and closer as, as the years go on. And ultimately, we'll just be there in this like progressive, wonderful future. What are your thoughts on? Well, actually, this you know, I mean, that is that is a very common view. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it goes back, I'm sure, even further, but it was sort of the cornerstone of what people call the Whig version of history uh, after the you know, the liberal English party and philosophers who saw an inexorable march towards progress, especially in Europe, but perhaps mm -hmm. even beyond. 
and uh, and in fact, we disagree with that. Uh, James and I have written another book, more recent book, The Narrow Corridor, which is exactly about why that sort of inexorable march is completely incorrect. And I think there are two fundamental reasons for that. One is exactly what you mentioned, human nature. You know, there is that fight between inclusion and extraction. You know, if you have successful individuals, businesses, what is there to stop them to use their success in order to grab a little more, tilt the playing floor, uh, playing playing field in their favor? I think that's always there, and that's why you know no extractive institution, no inclusive institution, is fully stable. But even more importantly, I think that sort of inexorable march towards progress ignores the rich synergistic nature of very different political relations that exist in society. And in particular, let's take an example to illustrate that. You know, one of the places where that sort of march towards progress will come sort of rhetoric was extremely common was in US-China relations. So president after president, Congress after Congress, journalist after journalist, uh, gave the same analysis starting in early 1990s or perhaps mm-hmm. late 1980s, saying, you know, trade freely with China, it will bring progress for the Chinese people. China will ultimately liberalize. It will start looking much more like the U.S. It will be like U.S. with Chinese characteristics, and and of course it was all bogus, and. It, if they had spoken to some Chinese scholars, they wouldn't have really made such confident predictions about how China would converge to Western institutions, liberal or whatever. Uh, you know, China has a history of thousands of years, at least 2,500 years of a very specific and different form of state society relations. Uh, a very different philosophy of how politics should be organized, how family and uh, society and political authority should interplay. On the basis of that, you know, civil society is organized very differently. That does not mean, by the way, that Chinese people have different desires or different aspirations than Western people. I think they have very similar aspirations. But the way that society is organized is so different that it takes you towards a different stable point. It doesn't take you towards something that the Westerners would recognize as their own notions of right and their own notions of uh, democracy. And uh, that doesn't always work out. You know, Tiananmen Square was much more of an uprising to demand a more democratic governance for China. And we've seen Hong Kong and Taiwan have managed to create very vibrant democracies before the one in Hong Kong was completely squashed by uh, the Communist Party recently. But 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 it means that the way that uh, political authority interplays with the economic system, with society's organization, those are all very, very different. And you're not going to get a smooth, inexorable process. And I don't think in 20 years' time or 30 years' time, we're going to see China become more like the U.S. 
Is that in one hand, is that pride that, oh, this American system is so good, so perfect. It's only a matter of time until they realize it and thinking it'll, it'll overshadow millennia of political and, and social structures. Or is it more just wishful thinking and not really educated? Uh, I think it's more the latter. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there is pride. There is also there. There are a set of blinders that people, especially politicians, mm-hmm. use in looking at the world. But it is also wishful thinking that is not based on, you know, careful analysis of history and uh, and and the political dynamics of of these nations. You know, and that's not the only one. I mean, the other extreme is Somalia. You know, the thought that, or Afghanistan, the thought that the U.S. could go and with minimal expenditure and a couple of uh, thousands of troops in the case of Somalia and more in the case of Afghanistan, quickly sort of build a functioning state institution on a very highly tribal, traditional society without trust in institutions, a lot of corruption, a lot of infighting. Again, that was a very... Uh, naive wishful thinking now in the other direction that it's actually very difficult to build anything that looks like state institutions. So China and societies like China are not that common either. You know, many different parts of the world actually lack functioning state institutions and building those state institutions is one of the hardest things you can imagine. So if if inclusive institutions are on one side and extractor on the other, is the arc of history kind of right in the middle or is it lean towards one of those sides? You know, I think if you look at uh, the vast uh, majority of history, you would say it certainly bends towards extractive. Hmm. You know, we could get into a detailed discussion as to whether foraging hunter-gatherer societies you know, how can compare them to later, you know, elite dominated state institutions. And that's part of the reason why, you know, we have expanded the framework in the narrow corridor sort of to a tripartite distinction, not just inclusive and extractive, Hmm. sort of uh, we call, you know, absent Leviathan places where they don't really have functioning state institutions, despotic Leviathan like in China, and then more shackled Leviathan where you have state institutions, but they are sort of, under the control of society, sometimes under the control of laws. But, you know, from the point of view of the questions that you're asking and on of why nations fail, I think you wouldn't be able to call these foraging institutions, foraging societies, very inclusive either. So, so then for the vast majority of human history, then almost all polities have been more, much closer to extractive. So in that therein lies the sort of the Whig, Whig version of history. So there has been an increase in sort of more democratic governance, more constrained rule, better protection for people, for workers, for minorities. <clears throat> but I think that has come out of a very contingent process of historical interplay. There was certainly no necessity. It was not an easy process. I think the U.S. history tells the story very clearly. You know, the naive view of U.S. history is, you know, the founding fathers set up a wonderful constitution and everything has worked out great since then. And I think that couldn't be further from the, farther from the truth. 
first of all, the founding fathers, yes, they were pretty impressive people, but <clears throat> they had their own very specific vision. They were not in favor of democracy. They were quite elitist. They wanted to build a very centralized state. For that, they thought, you know, uh, trampling on more democratic movements at the state level, uh, the local level, for example, was quite justified. And in fact, many aspects of their constitution was in order to silence those sorts of demands. They, of course, were quite willing to get into the Faustian bargain of uh, legitimizing slavery. But more importantly, the reason why this, that narrative is completely wrong is that there was nothing inevitable about the success of this project. It had many extractive elements. It had many awful elements from slavery to corruption to uh, very uh, severe lack of uh, public good provision, help for uh, poor people from the beginning, no tools for fighting poverty. You know, U.S. was complete laggard in using state institutions in order to hmm. fight poverty and create opportunity. <clears throat> and it was quite contingent moments, such as the Civil War, the progressive era where, you know, there was a complete turnaround and ossified political and economic privilege was uh confronted and then most importantly perhaps the civil rights era none of that was preordained and it was a struggle so we have to recognize uh, this sort of very checkered history and once you do that you realize well there's nothing sort of inexorable about this there's nothing that you know consistently bends towards justice or liberal institutions or inclusivity. And the same is true in Europe. I mean, you know, if you lived in Europe in the 1930s or 40s, you wouldn't think that European arc of institutions was bending towards, you know, great things. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting perspective. And, you know, I've got a pretty specific question here. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but you just kind of piqued my curiosity. In your opinion, did the founding fathers, do you think they foresaw the Civil War, this this great argument over slavery in the future? Because people, some people who are alive in the Revolution, not the founding fathers, but some people who were alive in the Revolution were alive during the Civil War. So it wasn't very long after, really. But so, so you're not you're not sure that they saw this as something that no. I mean, I think they did see they reconciled. did see the uh, the conflicts, the the, mm -hmm. the the contradictions, mm -hmm. and they weren't quite happy with it. I think they were really truly split on this. I mean, they were most of them were slave owners, and they doggedly defended their right to own slaves. But at the same time, they also understood and recognized that, you know, there were many things wrong with slaveholding, especially when it was done by others, not them. Uh, <clears throat> and they also didn't like the, you know, three-fifths clause and, 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 and other compromises like that. Mm -hmm. So you could even read into some of their pronouncements and some of the details of how they drafted things that... They were anticipating that slavery would ultimately disappear. But if they did that, they thought it would do so by its own accord, which was completely wrong. And of course, you know, 
how could they see, how could they foresee the cotton gin? You know, cotton mm-hmm. gin completely changed the character of slavery. Perhaps without the cotton gin, we would not have a civil war. Not that slavery would disappear by itself, but, you know, the huge wealth that cotton plantations generated, you know, that would not have been possible without the cotton gin and without the huge exports of cotton uh, and and the rapid industrialization in the north, which may have also been helped by uh, southern productivity in agriculture. Uh, you know, I, I think we don't understand these processes exactly today. How could they have foreseen it? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So you've got these ideas of a critical juncture, this this single event or instance or new technology or revolution or something happens and different systems interact with it in a different way depending on if they're inclusive or extractive. Can you explain a little further about this concept and how it's important? Well, let me give you an example from our current moment. Yeah. COVID-19. I would say COVID-19 is a critical juncture. It is a shock that hit every country in the world. The dictatorship in China, the weak states in Africa, struggling to provide public services and basic health care, the U.S. with its huge inequality problems and crumbling infrastructure, European countries in the midst of their transformative moment of how to deal with the supranational institutions of European Union of the European Union and the populist backlash. And it has shown that none of those institutions were really ready to tackle these huge challenges. Hmm. And it has laid bare that these institutions will need to change. But nobody knows, and nobody can know exactly how they're going to change. We can all have our wish list. We can say, you know, we want a better infrastructure in the U.S. We want a better welfare state. But we don't know whether that's going to succeed. You know, for all I know, I mean, I hope not. And I don't think it's likely, but for all I know, you know, Trump may come back in in four years' time as the as the as the new president again. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and that uncertainty is fed by the fact that existing institutions have been proven not to work, not to achieve what they promise. So that creates a vacuum, and that vacuum creates great uncertainty. Agency matters, contingency matters. Power struggles matter even more than usual. And I think we are living through a moment like that at the moment. And other examples like Black Death, a much more massive shock to the uh, demographic structure of Europe, uh, starting in the 1340s, you know, completely transformed Europe because you know it killed a third of the population in some places much more than that. So that is another critical juncture. Or World War II. Uh, Great Depression, you know, you cannot imagine the social democratic experiment, for example, without the Great Depression. You know, social democratic parties did not even have their, you know, template blueprints for institutions in a clear way before the Great Depression. And that started changing, for example, with the Workers' Party coming to power in Sweden in 1932. You know, again, completely causally caused by the Great Depression and the hardship that that had generated in, in Sweden. And World War II coming on top of it was the sort of trigger for continental Europe adopting welfare state institutions. And so how would you describe the the basic response by an inclusive 
institution and then exclusive? Like, what are the main differentiating factors there? I think, uh, you know, again, let's take the COVID-19 mm-hmm. pandemic. You know, you've seen how China has responded. It was first denial, trying to control information, because what they were most worried about was prestige and uh, discontent issues. The prestige of the party, the prestige of Chinese state institutions would be damaged. There would be discontent. There would be demand for change. And that was the first thing to avoid. But then, you know, in line with the tradition of strong state institutions, but not accountable to people, to society, you know, what you've seen is, uh, you know, China managed some aspects of the pandemic quite well. It was uh, a top-down effort to contact tracing and social distancing, but it worked much better than in many other places. Uh, But then, even though they had the most data, they completely bungled the vaccine and uh, and the second stage. So you see that you know there are certain things that extractive or despotic institutions are going to be quite good at when you know you need to do something by fiat, but they're not going to be able to generate bottom-up support or technological mm-hmm. change, innovation, experimentation. You know, next door to China, Taiwan did that much much better. Taiwan did the contact tracing, but now with the society. Uh, the the civil society and the business community uh, playing the lead part, developing technologies and people voluntarily uh, signing up for a social distancing system, the state sort of acting as a facilitator, not a despotic maestro. Mm-hmm. U.S. you see, you know, uh, you know, decades of uh, misinformation, polarization, turned, you know, basic questions of science and medicine into political uh, hot potato issues and, uh, and and inequality which you know has by now ossified come has come to alarming proportions in the United States really completely conditioned the response you know poor people are much much more likely to contract and die from COVID in the United States than than well-off people and lack of infrastructure medical conditions, those are all related to inequality in the United States and lack of, uh, you know, quick uh, uh, reaction in terms of masks and uh, uh, <clears throat> and, and, and testing, for example, mm-hmm. are all related to lack of uh, state capacity at the local level in many places. You know, preparing for this, I listened to, um, well, a bunch of your talks, but one of them, you talk about the example of a critical juncture in the 1700s, the opening of the Atlantic trade routes, and how Spain was more extractive and it was managed from the monarchy, the exploration, and so a lot of the uh, economic benefits went back to the monarchy and strengthened the institutions. Yep. Britain was more inclusive, and so it was more run by the privateers and merchants, and so the economic resources strengthened these individuals and it weakened the monarchy and the political institution at the time. I I immediately thought about a parallel to today of AGI and this race for artificial general intelligence mm-hmm. and kind of comparing and contrasting China versus the U.S. Do, do you think about that much at all? Or what kind of um, – are we able to draw any parallels to what's going on today? That's an interesting question. Uh, I hadn't quite thought about it that way, but it's an interesting – 
sort of analogy. So I think if I'm getting it right, what you're suggesting is, you know, the U.S. is more like Britain or England at the time, less well organized in terms of the monopolies. So it's a more sort of a de decentralized and perhaps disorganized process, just like the privateers uh, doing the exploration. And then ultimately, it may be more successful in the area of AGI, AGI and artificial general intelligence than the top-down Chinese model. Well, I think uh, there's some truth to that, but I would also disagree with it to some extent. And, and let me tell you what I see as the truth to it. You know, Despite the huge amount of data that the Chinese system has uh, gathered and will mm -hmm. continue to gather and uses, you know, the technological know-how is better in the U.S. And I think that's exactly for the reasons that you have articulated. The U.S. is a more inclusive society where business community feels freer. There's a lot of pressure on the business community, even when they are broadly allied with the government. You know, Alibaba is a very, you know, docile company. They are. They were always mm -hmm. working well with the government they were you know the in part co-engineers of the social credit social credit system which is you know the you know uh the most orwellian uh sort of use of state power you can imagine uh so it's certainly not possible to think of alibaba as as sort of a part of civil society fighting against despotism but one wrong step and Jack Ma, you know, gets completely sidelined and, you know, uh, is threatened by, you know, imprisonment or complete <clears throat> expropriation of his wealth. So, uh, so yes, that looks much more extractive, exactly like you said. But I think there are also fundamentally wrong things going on in the U.S. technology sector. And, you know, uh, when... When we were writing Why Nations Fail in 2010, mm -hmm. you know, you could think of many tech companies as, you know, st startups, you know, that are trying to be innovative and find their own ways, perhaps in the Wild West. You know, today it looks very different. The Wild West continues, but nothing else does. First mm -hmm. of all, they are completely integrated with state power now. They have huge lobbying arms. They influence politicians in every direction. Uh, they are inseparable from exercise of political power. Second, they have become monopolies, uh, and not just in product markets, you know, with Google, Facebook, for example, dominating their industries, but also in the future of technology. They determine how technology, what direction technology is going to go. And, and third, and this is something we did not, you know, explore in Why Nations Fail, uh, you know, you don't create an inclusive society by just having, you know, markets in which the successful get the full prize. You really need regulations. And the reason why you need regulations is sometimes uh, winners take all or rich get richer. And you've created such dynamics in the tech sector, and these companies have become too powerful in every domain, making it very unlikely that we can sort of generate anything that looks like inclusion in 
the tech industry or in the domains that are touched by the tech industry, for example, AI, for example, you know, how new technologies are going to be deployed in the fast food industry. So all of these now make me think that in some sense, the U.S. approach to exploiting these new technologies is no better. And in fact, uh, the Chinese system is quite awful especially when it comes to AI, because AI is going to be a huge tool in the hands of the government to collect a massive amount of massive amounts of data about people and then use that for control. Well, that's exactly what big tech companies are doing. Do we feel better if, the, if, if Google manipulates us, or do we feel better when the Chinese state or the Chinese Communist Party manipulates us? I don't know. I think they, they both seem bad to me. So in that sense, uh, I don't think any of them look like uh england on the other hand i you know at the time if you looked at it england didn't look pretty either the privateers were awful people they were pirates murderers yeah. thieves and what the english did in their colonies were quite as awful uh comparably awful to what the spanish did they were highly exploitative they murdered people they repressed people you know it just that in some places, they weren't able to do that full scale, like in northeastern United States or Australia, because there was resistance. But but what they tried to do, even if it came from sort of a more decentralized privateering tradition, was not that different from what the Spaniards attempted. Mm-hmm. So so I think uh, <clears throat> glass is half full, glass is half empty. Yeah. You know, uh, so could we rule out? The possibility that out of the mess that we have created in the tech world in the United States, something better can come out? No, of course we cannot rule it out. Do I think it's likely that something better will come out? I don't think it's likely. And what about from the perspective of either strengthening or weakening the political institutions? So from that example, it was for, for Britain, it was somewhat of a precursor to the Glorious Revolution because the monarchy was weakened. Exactly. Would, yeah, exactly. Is is there any par- is there any way to think about that today with the U.S. of say these independent corporations that are very powerful gained this new power through uh, AGI? Is that something to think about or consider? And like yeah, absolutely, but it goes in the opposite to, you know, direction. Bust up monopolies, right? It goes in the opposite direction. I think mm-hmm. you know our our, our theory uh, uh, on of you know how the rise of Europe came about is is very much exactly like you said, it's an institutional one. It's not that, you know, Europeans were on an inexorable match towards progress. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they plundered the colonies and out of that they became rich. Sure, they plundered them, but, you know, that wasn't enough. That would not have created a industrial revolution by itself. Our theory is that the riches from the Atlantic trade, <clears throat> including the slave trade and trade with Asia, disrupted the balance. Hmm. And that balance everywhere favored the monarchy and the groups allied with the monarchy. And it disrupted it most in places where that the grip of the monarchy, monarchy was weakest, such as uh, England or the Netherlands. Now, today we start from a situation of fragile but still inclusive political institutions in the U.S. The question is not to create inclusive institutions, but to save the ones that we have. Of course, improve them and save them. 
And there, I think the increasing power of tech companies, with or without AGI, by the way, I don't think AGI is really a, anything that's going to be on the cards for the next 50, 60, 70 years. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't worry about that. I would use much more about the more routine and uh, boring uses of AI that are already damaging society and the economy. But leaving that aside, digital technologies are contributing to the weakening of inclusive political institutions. So the question is, how can we regulate and contain these digital technologies so as we save what we have? Mm -hmm. And then, so perhaps away from technology, but looking more at China and the US, there's, there's a story that China's rising power, the U.S. is the dominant power, but declining, and eventually China will overtake the U.S. and be the dominant global power. Through your framework, do you do you think about this kind of the same way, just more nuanced, or you approach it from com- completely differently? How do you think about the relationship between China and the U.S.? Well, I mean, those are critical questions, and there are questions of international relations, to, so to speak. And both why nations fail and the narrow corridor... Uh, we uh, we took a big bite of the apple, but not the whole apple. And the part we <laughs> left out was the international relations part. You know, you cannot completely leave it out. So, you know, you cannot ignore the fact that Europe grew by colonizing and that colonization had major effects on the rest of the world. But we did not, you know, discuss great power politics or rivalries mm-hmm. or pacts and how countries influence each other in more fundamental and very uh, varied ways i think those are critical questions uh, <clears throat> i think many international relations scholars think about it exactly like you said which is this is a dangerous situation because one hegemon power hegemonic power is declining the other one is rising and that those are the times that lead to war many people interpret world war one in that light germany's rise britain's decline paving the way to conflict but 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 i think there are many many interesting dynamics here i hope we're not in a new cold war but we may be uh but more importantly i think the way that I think about it is that China has, of course, lifted a billion people out of poverty. So you have to take your hat off to them. But on the other hand, you have to recognize that it's an extractive institution. It's an extractive economic system. But more importantly, I think China is also exporting its extractive system to the rest of the world. And I don't just mean Chinese companies going and uh, undertaking construction projects in Africa, that happens and, and and they support dictators who give them good deals. But more importantly, Chinese exports, which are you know, the lifeblood of the Chinese system, then affect the economy, increase inequality, destabilize uh, political systems around the world. So it's a side effect of the very rapid growth of China. And it's a very rapid growth under extractive institutions that's also creating instability in the in 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 the U.S. and in 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 Europe. So you know, I don't think China or trade with China is the most important factor in job loss and inequality in the U.S. or Europe, but it is a major contributing factor. So. If you want to have a more holistic approach to these questions, you have to take all of those into account, and that's why it's a difficult thing. And 
that's why we chose to ignore it. But <laughs> the, the the classic international relations line, which is just about great power politics, also ignores some of these imp- important economic interactions. You know, it really seems like a philosophical question, but if individually, if we're put in a position of you put us on this world without power and it's just me, I'm going to want the inclusive institution. And I would, I would say all humans would probably want that inclusive system if they were just kind of outside of their own community. You let, let's say someone who has power, take the power away. They're just a person in the world. They're going to want the inclusive. And yet you say that history bends towards extractive. What is it in humanity that, and this is like a deep question, of course, of how can you humanity want one thing and yet we constantly gravitate towards the other? Well, I mean, I think exactly you're right. <clears throat> we would all want a more harmonious society, one in which the strong do not trample on the weak, one on which the alpha males do not obliterate the rest. And, you know, humanity has sometimes been able to do that, you know, even... We certainly have. Under foraging, uh, in foraging societies, we've been able to do that. There are a lot of different methods we have developed, some deep in our psyche, that that deals with that. But, you know, I think the, the way that you put the question gets to some of the key philosophical issues. You know, you, you essentially undertook what <clears throat> the great philosopher John Rawls calls behind a veil of ignorance reasoning. And John Rawls' perspective is that what is fair, what is just, is what we would all want behind a veil of ignorance. So we don't know whether we're going to be born in Beverly Hills or, you know, uh, the slums of New Orleans or, you know, Kinshasa. And now imagine how much inequality should there be in the U.S.? How much inequality should there be around the world? And behind a veil of ignorance, John Rawls says, you know, uh, people would not want too much inequality because they're going to uh, end up suffering out of that. They don't, they're not, they don't expect to be the one to benefit from the inequality. Uh, simplified greatly, of course, his great mm-hmm. philosophy. Uh, but the problem with all of these behind the veil of ignorance arguments, you can use them normatively. Perhaps that's what we should want. But that's not how it works because who has power? The people who have political access and economic might have political power. And at the time that they exercise that power, they know very well where their bread is buttered. So the fact that many people would want a more equal, a fairer society doesn't really matter when, you know, tycoons and uh, politicians who benefit from the tycoon's wealth in terms of power and riches, you know, know exactly where the benefits lie for them. And that is the reason why, you know, extractive institutions are so common in society because whoever has military power, coercion power, uses it to set up a system that favors itself, its family, its allies. And that's why, you know, we have slavery. That's why we have feudal relations, uh, vassal relations, uh, uh, serfdom and and, and such things. That's why we have very unequal coercion-based labor markets throughout human history. And that's why we have today a very unequal and unfair society. While, you know, technically, technologically, we could have created a better society. 
So to go one step further down the philosophical path, I I kind of ponder that question of I really like the the way you put it of the behind the veil of ignorance. And so let's say we're no longer ignorant, we're someone who has power and I'm putting myself in that sh- in those shoes and I often think about this in my own life when thinking about motivations. Am I attracted towards this thing and that's why I'm going there or am I afraid of that thing and I'm running away from it? And so the question kind of to you through the lens that you look at all these dynamics is that person, this figurative person, are they attracted to more power when they already have it? Or are they running away from the thing they know they don't want? I don't want to lose my power. I don't want to be the person I control. I think both. I think both. You, think both? you know, there is there is definitely a status quo bias. People are keener and they internalize what they have and they don't want to lose it. But there are basic aspirations. I don't think anybody is born wanting to be a slave. Uh, you know, we are actually very different from other great apes that also have many similarities to us in terms of their biology and social relations, but they internalize hierarchy much more naturally. Hmm. Humans are not so keen on hierarchy. You know, you see that in all sorts of human societies that they work immediately they try to work out ways of containing hierarchy. They don't like people who are too bossy. They don't like alpha males who try to coerce, impose their will on people. That is a universal. It applies as much to people who have grown up in different religions, who are Confucian versus Protestant, who have grown up under despotic governments versus democratic governments. But they are channeled in different ways. And so to kind of wrap up the these talks about power, you've you've spent a lot of time diving into this and in 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 your books. And so where where does this idea of power even come from? Like the origins of power, how would you define that? Well, you know, power is the one constant in human relations. You know, I mentioned the alpha males. You know, take the uh take the apes. Power is everywhere because they have lots of scarce resources, food, mates. One person is going to get it, another person is not going to get it. There is no easy way of making that decision, and power is the currency. So -hmm. if there is a cake, you want it, I want it, well, how we're going to slice that is going to depend on who is more powerful. Now, the question is, can we create a fair distribution of power, countervailing powers against those who act like alpha males. And that's where institutions come in. That's where you know our aspirations come in. Mm-hmm. And then can you connect the dots between, on one hand, prosperity and one hand, poverty through the yeah. sense of power? So essentially, you know, the argument... You know, we're coming to it at the end. You know, mm-hmm. we could have started there. I mentioned the sort of the textbook economic model of inclusive institutions, but the reason why inclusive institutions are tightly bound with poverty and prosperity is because we think, we argue, and we document historically and and otherwise 
that inclusive institutions are better for generating sustained long-run economic growth based on technological change, productivity improvements, new products, new, new ideas. Extractive institutions can sometimes bring extractive growth, like in China today, like in Prussia in the 19th century, like in Russia under Stalin, but it tends to be not as much based on technological change, not as much, uh, you know, generating fair gains, shared gains, mm -hmm. and not as durable. So that's why poverty and prosperity are linked to institutions. And worse, extractive institutions that look after growth, such as those in China today or Russia in the past, are the exception. Most extractive institutions don't even generate that, such as those in sub-Saharan mm. Africa or Burma or Myanmar today. They <clears throat> block technological change. They empower a narrow group so much that they monopolize all the opportunities and growth doesn't even take off. So poverty is tightly linked to extraction. Interesting. Well, I think we just tied a bow on all that. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you taking your time, Darren. This has been a great conversation. If We got to get you to your next meeting, but if folks want to find more of your work, we've mentioned the books, but where can they find the books? And maybe if you, uh, I don't know if you write on your own or anything, but. Yeah, I do. I, I write uh, for Project Syndicate, which gets syndicated around. I write once a month. And the books are uh, on Amazon, on my website, and also on the publisher's website. The first one is by Crown, Why Nations Fail, and the second, The Narrow Corridor, is by Penguin Press. Uh, so uh, uh, I recommend them to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll send folks that way. Thank Great. you. Great. Well, yeah, thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure, Bradford. Listening to other YouTube channels, I hear a lot of the smashing the like button. I'd like to suggest gently click it. It's going to be nicer on your computer and probably longevity for your technology anyway. So likely click that subscribe button, like, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach more audience, more people, and that way we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below who you'd like us to interview next, and we look forward to seeing you next week.